Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. everybody, welcome to History is Gay. I'm Lee, as usual, and today we're bringing you a little mini episode that is an interview with uh, a new friend uh, named Stephen Capsudo, who is the author of Alternate Channels, Queer Images in 20th Century TV, which I've really enjoyed, and it has been out for uh, many years, but there is a new edition, and it is bright, and it is pink, and it is beautiful, and a whole bunch of colors, and if you know me, you know that I love talking about queer TV. So uh, I'm very excited to chat with Stephen. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me, Lee. This is exciting. Yeah. Love the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I. Uh, it's it's so funny. Like in starting this podcast, one of my first things that I wanted to do um, before we even settled on doing like a queer history podcast is I wanted to do a queer media analysis podcast. So it's nice to be able to get like these little tidbits. And every episode we talk about, you know, we do pop culture tie-ins. So it's nice to nice to have like a, a chat. Um, but, uh, I wanted to kind of just start at the beginning. Um, I'm sure that you've been asked this in every single interview, but, uh, what kind of inspired you to start researching and writing this book? Like what was your own history growing up and seeing queer images on, on TV? I was really lucky. You know, there, there had been in the early to mid seventies, the, the, as it was then the gay liberation movement was lobbying the networks to, you know, stop portraying all the lesbians as serial killers and, and stop portraying the gay men as like terrorists and child molesters and whatnot. And so by the time I knew I was gay, uh, I was seeing some okay stuff. You know, I was seeing the daytime talk shows that had like gay activists on and characters who, while problematic, at least seemed to have friends and family and jobs and lives, Mm -hmm. you know, and weren't killing anybody. So um, that was good. But (laughs) that was sort of like a little oasis. That was like the, the late 70s period. And by the time I was in grad school in the late 80s, I was volunteering at an LGBT crisis hotline. And, you know, it was a different era. Not a lot of people were out, which meant we were invisible to society, which was bad enough, but we right. were also invisible to each other, which meant like if you were a queer kid, you looked at the broader culture and you looked at your neighborhood and you looked at your school and you just saw no reflection there of people like you, right? right. Or what you saw was terrifying. So um, particularly in the media in the 80s where, you know, basically all you saw was, you know, you can't be gay on TV unless you're evil or dead. Evil or dead or dying. I mean, and, and AIDS was like the big thing, right? So like every image you saw of a queer person was a gay or bisexual man dying, mm. you know? And then occasionally you would get the criminal characters. You know, I remember around that time, uh, Hunter did an episode with killer lesbians. I mean, it was just like, it wasn't a great time to be trying to figure out who you were, right? So we were getting calls at the crisis hotline from these 15, 16 year old kids saying, I think I'm lesbian, I think I'm gay, and I'm thinking of killing myself. Mm. And what our clinical supervisor told us to do, if they were calm enough to have the conversation, which they usually were sort of at that moment you could, uh, is to say, well, what do you think gay people's lives are like? 
to get a sense of what they thought they were doomed to, right? Right. And every time I asked that, the answer I got was, I only know what I see on TV. Mm. And then I talked to the other volunteers and they said they were getting that answer. And then I looked through the logbook and every call from a suicidal gay or lesbian teenager included that sentence. I only know what I see on TV. So I thought, well, that's odd. Cause like, you know, I grew up watching, you know, the Phil Donahue show and, and, you know, all these, you know, soap and, you know, dynasty where maybe the characters weren't happy, but they weren't tragic either. Right. Right. So, um, I was like, well, that's interesting. What's airing on TV. I was in grad school. I didn't have time to watch TV. I barely had time to sleep. So uh, (laughs) I decided once I was out of grad school to take all of these research skills they had drummed into my head and put it to what I thought was a more, a better use. And I had gotten a job in information technology at an insurance company. It was right near the main research library in Philadelphia, the, the free library's main building. Mm-hmm. and uh, two blocks away. And so every day at lunchtime, I would spend 45 minutes at the library going through, this is pre-internet, right? So you couldn't like just do Google searches. So you had to like <laughs> go through. You gotta go to an archive, go to a library. And, and go, th- so I went through from starting when radio network broadcasting started in 1926 up to the present. I went through every year's New York Times Index, Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, Washington T- uh, Post Index, every index they had, and copied articles and added shows to the database. Basically, I was looking for anything, well, 1926, I was looking under perversion comma sexual. Right, yeah. And looking for articles about broadcasting. Yeah. yeah, and then looking at the broadcasting articles for things that seemed like a hint here and there. And I remember talking to people, you know, at the Free Library of Philadelphia, at uh, what's now the Paley Center for Media in New York, at the Lesbian History Archives in Brooklyn. And they all said, I don't think you're going to find, this was like 1989, you're really not going to find much of anything before the 80s, maybe late 70s. And I was finding stuff from the 30s and 40s and 50s. The whole first chapter of the book is called Before Television, Early Radio. Right. You have to expand the definition of what you're looking for. That's something that we really have figured out in the process of making this show is that so much of if you want to find queerness where queerness was not defined, you have to really look between right. the lines. But some of it's not really between the I just gave a talk uh I love I, the great great thing about the the Zoom age is I can give talks for <laughs> libraries that are far away and not have to get on a plane. I was yes. just giving a talk for a library and I ran a, a 1950 radio clip of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, and the the premise is that uh, Bob Hope is out of work. His sponsor has you know canceled his show, and Bing Crosby has gotten him a gig with his own sponsor, a cigarette company. But that part of the contract is they have to go out and be cigarette girls at famous nightclubs, you know, in drag. Right. right. And that's where it gets weird, because at that point, Bob Hope says, uh, Bing Crosby says, well, I've been working the Macombo. And Bob Hope says, holy smoke, are you Carlotta? And then there's this whole thing about how he and Carlotta had this hot night together. And oh, Carlotta geez. kept slapping him when he would get fresh. And and, you know, so, I mean, it's like it's that's not very cool. Yeah. <laughs> So there's stuff that's not very coded or, you know, um, I found a radio show from the UK because the UK was much more comfortable with queer content before the US was. Mm. Uh, There was a crime drama series called The Black Museum. And there was this episode about what is clearly an anti-lesbian murder. I mean, Mm. this guy heard that she wasn't interested in men and he starts harassing her and he kills her. And you only hear her for about a minute and a half. But she is clearly a lesbian character. 
So there is stuff there. And then there's stuff that's coded. You know, right. early television stuff like there's a, a the wonderful sissies and my favorite one. There's a there's um so early so early when I started doing this, my family had just we were late adopters of technology in my family. So it was <laughs> nineteen uh, nineteen eighty four. We finally got a color TV and replaced the black and white set in the living room. And then eighty seven, we got cable and a VCR. We could record shows, <laughs> and I was so. Thank you, by the way, for for calling it a VCR because I I interact with so many babies that like, or even just people of my generation who are starting to call it like a VHS player. I'm like, no, remember your roots. It's yes, a VCR. It's a recorder. It's a recorder. Yeah. I'm just like, no, uh, stop. And I, I still have about a thousand tapes sort of stashed around the apartment. So, <laughs> so w- when I started the project, it, it, even before I was officially starting it, I was starting to collect material. And I would watch these reruns of old shows and I was like, crap, I should have recorded that. So I started recording everything I watched. Mm. And if there was no queer content, I would just rewind and record over it. But that random approach got me clips that I still use in lectures. And, and in fact, some things that are in the book. So there's an episode of Private Secretary from 1953, which was this workplace sitcom. And the guest star that week was Franklin Pangborn. And people may not know the name. But he made his whole career playing sissies in the movies. He's like in Fred Astaire movies from the 30s. And he always looks up at the black suit with the, the flower in his lapel, the white gloves clutched in one hand. The okay, mustache. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. See, a, I, I, love, I love Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. So I'm like, wait a minute. Oh. He's, he's like a third of all the sissies in 1930s movies is, is Franklin. So this is 1953. He's a little older and he's playing a male secretary. So right away, like he seems like a cartoonist's vision of a sissy. He's a man in a woman's profession. And he keeps talking about how he bruises so easily. And then um, he says, well, you know, actually my ambition was to become an interior decorator. But, you know, when you have to hang drapes, you have to climb ladders. And I bruise so easily. Bruise, bruise. So it's like it's coded because you weren't allowed to say a character was gay, but you could stack enough stereotypes that no one would miss it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's what, it's what will resonate. <laughs> so, okay. So you said you started researching this in, in 1989, you said, and so the yeah. book goes till, goes until 2000. Right. So it's got like, you know, Buffy, Dawson's Creek, uh, Will and Grace. Mm-hmm. How did you go about the research in terms of like moving past like locally? At what point did you realize that this would have to be something that you would kind of go all over and search everywhere you could? Well, so what what I started out doing was creating a, a database or a, uh, it started as a spreadsheet became a database where as I was reading all these articles, I would anytime there was a mention of a specific show, I would record, you know, broadcast date, network, title, and then a little what synopsis I could piece together. And then I started going through TV Guide every week for 11 years, looking oh, at man, every plot TV description. <laughs> uh, and I had three VCRs running in different rooms connected to different cable boxes. Oh, wow. And so I was getting the older shows that way. And then the newer shows also, you know, as they were coming up. Um, and then at that point, you couldn't, when the book came out in 2000, you still couldn't buy whole seasons of TV series on home video in the US. Mm. But you could in England. And so okay. I was like m- mail ordering things from Tower UK and from Amazon UK. Uh, and I, I had to get like a multi-standard VHS machine. And mm-hmm. it was, yeah. Um, so th- once I had enough information, I started contacting people for interviews uh, and doing phone interviews, some in-person interviews, 
with activists, writers, producers, and then I was also collecting uh, material from anti-gay groups like the National Federation for Decency, which is now the American Family Association, and some mm-hmm. of the other groups, because they were so obsessed with queer act, uh, characters on television. <laughs> they were documenting so... it better than I was. <laughs> I almost okay. thanked Reverend Wildman in the acknowledgments. I mean, it so was... <laughs> maybe, maybe he thinks you're a little too interested in these friends. Yeah. 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 And then I, so then I started going to, um, I was going to be in San Francisco anyway. So I spent, uh, I think, uh, one or two afternoons at the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society, or I guess by then it was the GLBT Historical Society. Uh, and Susan Stryker was a great help in, you know, pulling materials. Mm-hmm. And I was there, you know, taking notes frantically. And I went to the Lesbian History Archives in Brooklyn. I went to the, uh, what was then the Museum of Television and Radio in New York, now the Paley Center. Um, I went up to Ithaca, New York, to Cornell because, so there's that era from about 73 to 75 where like all the queer characters in prime time, whether they're lesbian, gay, bi, trans, or just sort of vaguely queer are all like, you know, criminals. They're violent, they're horrible, they're dangerous and scary, which of course is just when we're starting to try and get our rights. So this is what the public is seeing of us. Right. And, uh, So the gay liberation movement started pressuring the networks and they finally agreed that they would run all their queer scripts past a consulting organization called the Gay Media Task Force. And the GMTF's papers are at Cornell. And that was amazing. Yeah, reading the book, that was so interesting. (laughs) I mean, never ever have I been like, oh, yes, I enjoy this lobbying group. They're fun, aren't they? I mean, all of them are fun. I also loved lesbian feminist liberation, you know, taking over the the executive offices of NBC in 1974. With, uh, with, uh, I can't remember her name, but the the woman who came in with her children saying that she was waiting for... Oh, Stevie Knowles, and then the cameras from the competing networks are running as as they're going, Mommy, we love you. Mommy, we love you. Yeah, I'm waiting for my husband. I'm I'm bringing my husband lunch. Nice little subterfuge coming in, like, ah, yes, use the cloak of heterosexuality to infiltrate. That that is the chapter that sold the book to Random House, (laughs) I loved it. I was I was very pleased with it. I was like, I I'm really here for these like crafty lesbians being like, you oh. know what? We're gonna go even further than the men. Did. And what I I just found, and I didn't know this even when I was revising the book for for this year's revised edition. There's video of that protest. Uh, I was looking on the the uh, what were they called the the uh, Love Video Collective, which was this lesbian video collective in New York in the seventies. And they would go around to these different events and they would, with their portable video machine, which was like a giant reel-to-reel <laughs> machine strapped to your back with a like right. shoulder-mounted camera. And they would tape things and they taped the protest outside NBC as that was going oh, on inside. Wow. And it's, it's up on Vimeo. Like oh, anybody I have can to watch check it. it out. Yeah, that. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll put a link to it on uh, on our show notes for this. That's really cool. Oh man. Uh, so, what are I mean? You know, we're going into a couple of them already, but what are some of your favorite stories that you uncovered while researching the book? Like, what what surprised you that you didn't know about when going into it? I think how far back the imagery goes surprised me. You know, the fact that there was a radio series in the '30s and '40s, '40s that had what was very obviously a gay regular. So this whole idea that oh nobody knew gay people existed before 1980 they just you know, they weren't exist and they weren't invented before Stonewall that's just nonsense right right people knew <laughs> uh, I think my favorite episode is one of the worst 
and it's the one that inspired that protest, which is the the episode of Police Woman about the gang of killer lesbians running a nursing home. <laughs> right. Is it flower, flowers for evil or flowers? Flowers of, of evil. Flowers, flowers of, of evil. E <laughs> Mm. And that's really what politicized the movement around television. I mean, a, a little bit, there had been like some Marcus Welby episodes that weren't so great. And, but that was really what it was like. That's it. This needs to be a priority to change the public image in entertainment media. Mm. And this is years before GLAAD existed even. This is very sort of early days. So there's that. Talking with, when I was watching Dynasty, because I had not watched the original Dynasty in the 80s when it originally aired, because it's just not my type of television, really. Uh, but I had to sort of binge watch it. And fortunately, FX was rerunning it. So I just had a VCR going. <laughs> and I binge watched it. And I thought, okay, I'm sort of seeing the pattern here is when AIDS is in the news and the public is really depressed about it, the gay character is dating women mm -hmm. or married to women. And then when people come down a little, he's dating a guy. And his, his boyfriends keep getting killed off, you know, in violent ways. And his female love interests just live on and on and on. But um, I thought, okay, I bet that's the pattern. It seems to be like, what surprised me most, I guess, was how tied the entertainment script content was in the 70s and 80s to what was happening in the news. Mm. And AIDS was a big part of that. And I did finally talk to uh, one of the head writers of Dynasty, and he did confirm. He said, yeah, every year uh, we would write Stephen as a gay character. And if AIDS was in the news, the network said back off. Mm. And when I went through the Gay Media Task Force papers, that confirmed it because they had each season's plot Bible. And every season, it's Stevens, you know, he's gay, he's with a guy. And then it changes the years when AIDS is in the news. Um, in the 70s, you have the same thing when uh, Anita Bryant and that whole, you know, rise of the religious right campaigning against Save uh, Our Children, blah, blah, Save blah. Our Children. Ugh. And basically, what was happening was the first anti discrimination laws around sexual orientation were being passed. And these sort of terrified, you know, right-wing evangelicals, and Anita Bryant became sort of the celebrity spokesperson for that movement, uh, were like, oh my God, that means, you know, gay people can be teachers, and we all know gay people are child molesters, right? So uh, that was their mantra. But what that does is suddenly, for the first time ever, you can turn on the news in 77, from about June of 77 to uh, November of 78, and gay rights were that story you couldn't get away from. Mm -hmm. Right. In the late 70s, it was it was, uh, you know, this crusade to discriminate against gay people in employment and housing and public accommodations. And suddenly you see all these scripts that are not about interpersonal prejudice against gay people. It's about institutional prejudice. Right. You have, you know, TV movies about lesbian moms going to court to keep their kids and Sergeant Matlovich fighting to stay in the Air Force and all these sort of discrimination plot lines. And sometimes it's even incidental. All in the Family did this great episode called Cousin Liz, where Edith's cousin has died and they find out that the other old maid school teacher that she, you know, was sharing an apartment with had been her lover for 25 years. But there's the whole thing that, yeah, if that becomes known, she will lose her job as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer just like the earlier All in the Family episodes, Archie is prejudiced. It's, it's this institutional and that comes out of the news and it still happens. It, you know, happened in yeah. the 90s when all those gay people were coming out of the closet. Um, as problematic as Caitlyn Jenner is and the, you know, cult of celebrity that briefly surrounded her, um, that got more trans stories onto TV because yeah, I mean, you have to she say, was in the news. Exactly. I mean, visibility is, you know, important for a reason, regardless, sometimes regardless of the content of the visibility, sometimes just the existence <laughs> works. 
Um, I wanted to I wanted to ask. So this this is the the second edition of the book. The first one was published in two thousand. This one includes content that was cut from the first edition and adds about what like a hundred photos that weren't previously published. Right. Like the original at the, the at the last minute, the publisher decided in two thousand not to include any of the photos I had found. Okay. And, and I and this is a book where you kind of need the photos, you know. Mm. I mean, and you get so. I mean, one of the things you get from the photos is just how white the history of queer characters on television was. And, you know, when you get to the exceptions to that, you know, like here is the only recurring, you know, LGBT Asian character in the century. Mm -hmm. You know, here are the few black characters. So I think you need those visuals. And also just to see, you know, when you're reading text about a character, you don't really get a picture in your head. Right. Yeah, it really, it really uh, rounds things out. You spent some time as an archivist, right? At the yeah. GLBT Library and Archives of Philadelphia. Right. Um, what, is, what is now the Wilcox Archives at the William Way Center in Philadelphia, right? Right, yeah. Uh, I, I ran the library there for years, and then our archivist left, and I also took over the archives, and that was tremendous fun. And then there was sort of an overlap between these two projects. So two of the first people I interviewed for this were uh, the sort of very early pioneering lesbian activists, Barbara Giddings and her partner, Kay Tobin Lehusen, mm-hmm. uh, who wound up becoming great friends. They lived in Philly. I lived in Philly. Uh, at one point where I was between apartments, I was living with them. And, oh, and, wow. And they had, they had see, they, they had gotten involved. Barbara had been in the movement since the 50s. Mm-hmm. Kay had gotten involved in 61. And they not only were activists, they were they knew that what they were doing was important, which I think maybe some of the activists didn't, and they kept everything. Everything, yeah. And in 2007, they donated 293 cartons of material about the movement to New York Public Library's uh, manuscripts collection. Wow. And yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what are some <laughs> of your favorite things in that collection? Here we go. <laughs> That's, yeah. So, so while we were doing all that, um, I was working on the book. So I had interviewed them because Barbara had been... Uh, one of Phil Donahue's first two lesbians on the Phil Donahue show in, in 1960-something, 68, I think, uh, back when it was a local show in uh, Ohio, in Akron, I think. And it was her and Lily Vincennes, and she said it was like two lesbians and Phil Donahue and a bunch of really hostile Ohio housewives who were not happy to be stuck in a small <laughs> space with two lesbians. <laughs> So she had made audio recordings of a lot of her early radio appearances, TV appearances in the 60s. But also they would go to the, you know, the movement was very small back then. It was, you know, maybe 20 organizations, 200 people. They all knew each other. And they would have these regional and national planning conferences in like the mid to late 60s. And she would bring her giant reel-to-reel tape recorder and record the strategy sessions. And so that's all at New York Public. But while we were going through this, before it went to New York Public, I said, can we? Pl- can I please copy a lot of this for the archives in Philly? You know, because I think some of this deserves to be at a queer community-based archive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were able to copy a lot of, you know, appearances by gay activists on talk shows in 1967 and things like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. It's so it's so fun when like your passion project and what you're doing for a living just intersect in those ways. Um, 
That's really neat. I, wa- I wanted to kind of bring us into right now. Obviously, since the book came out in 2000, since that time, there have been massive strides and changes in the landscape of queer images on TV. Even in the last five years, there's yeah. been like a seismic shift, not just in the amount of queer representation, but the tone and the quality of that representation. So if you were to write a follow-up book, and I'm, you know, I'm going to guess you probably are, uh, <laughs> like focusing on the last 20 years, what do you think are the, are the highlights? What do you want to make sure gets included and and noted as kind of historic changes. I think a lot of the history of television and so by extension, the history of minority representation in television is a history of moving from scarcity to plenty, Mm. right? So like originally, you know, you lived in a city and there were like two TV stations you could choose from and then there were three and then there were six and then there was cable and then there were streaming platform, right? So that multiplies. And what that means on the one hand is that a lot less is riding on each portrayal. Like back when there were three networks and, you know, you saw a lesbian on TV once a year or a gay person, a gay man on TV five times a year or something like that, a trans person once a decade, a lot was riding on each one of those portrayals. So there was a lot more to write about. Whereas now, and this is something I talked about at the end of the book, I said, you know, I hate to make predictions because you wind up looking foolish when you get (laughs) things wrong. But I said, I think that as the speed of the internet increases, we're going to see, you know, just as you can stream audio now, you're going to be able to stream video and there's going to be specialized programming. You're a wizard. And, yes. <laughs> and you won't, and you won't need, you know, for a show to be financially feasible, you won't need 30 million viewers. You can have like a niche market and still make your money back because people will be able to discover the show a year later, two years later, you know, whereas in the old days, you just had to, if you didn't see something when it aired, you, you just never saw it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a different model. Um, a lot changed even in the year and a half, two years after the book came out. The book came out in summer of 2000. And like right after that, you have Queer as Folk. And then, mm-hmm. the, I mean, the American Queer as Folk. Right. And then the L word. The L word. And then the explosion of reality shows, the competitive yes. reality shows. Like you had had things before. You had had the real world. You had had an American family. But you hadn't had the competitive shows. And right after the book came out, I think like right around the time Queer as Folk premiered, CBS premiered Survivor. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you always had to have the one or two queer people in there and the one or two like bigoted right wingers who are uncomfortable around. Them. <laughs> right. But it's, but it's, yeah, it's just having like queer people in the fabric of the show, just being queer people. And what's, what's changed, I think is, so a lot of what was, I mean, there are exceptions, but a lot of what was on TV in the 20th century was straight cisgender people's fantasies about what queer people were like. Mm. Right. So the writer was usually straight. The producer was usually straight. There are exceptions, but mostly uh, and mostly men. So you have like all those. Well, yeah, two women can kiss because that's kind of hot, but not two guys. That's kind of gross. <laughs> right. Whereas now you have people telling their own stories. You have queer people in the writing room, on the production team, often in the cast. So, you know, I mean, one of the examples I, I cite is you look at Pose. Right. Mm. Which, I mean, A, those are characters who never would have been allowed on TV before ever. Those is everything that I've ever watched in a TV show. Yeah. Now, the first couple episodes are written by Ryan Murphy. And they're okay. (laughs) They're okay. Uh, We have feelings about Ryan Murphy on this show. (laughs) He, He has, I think he has evolved over time. Yes. Since Nip Tuck, things have gotten better. But... Um, so those two episodes that he wrote are okay, but once you have trans women in the writing room and a trans woman of color in the writing room and on the production team, and the stories become much more solid. It's people talking about reality as they know it. Mm. And that's a different thing than someone else imagining your reality for you. 
Right. And it's reality as we know it and not tragedy porn. It's mm-hmm. these, oh my these God. Are the things that are yeah. happening in this community, but we're not, it's, it's not voyeuristic. It's acknowledgement it's not, of these things that are happening, but not. Yeah. yeah and it's not, them. it's not the only thing that people, you know, it's like it used to be a gay character would show up and all they could talk about was being gay. They would show up for one episode, talk about what it's like to be a gay person in America, and then you never saw them again. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, Vito Russo who wrote The Celluloid Closet used to say it was like the gay equivalent of all those Sidney Poitier movies in the 60s, mm-hmm. right? He, where he was like, he's the black man, we white people. Like, there's never a thought that there are black people in the audience, right? It's written for white people. And he shows up and all he's allowed to talk about is what it's like to be black. Right. And he's not like a fully formed person. I mean, he was a great actor and could bring things to it that maybe weren't in the script. Right. But in the script, that's the focus. And it used to be that way for queer characters. You would show up, you would do a coming out episode or you would be discriminated against. Trans characters in the 20th century mostly were patients on hospital dramas who jumped off the roof at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, as you said, tragedy porn. And when you have people whose view of what it's like to be queer is what it's like to be a full human being who happens to be queer, that changes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested to hear what you think about, I mean, I I exist a lot in like queer lady fandom circles. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, for me, a lot of media analysis really focused a lot in the, in, you know, what we call the spring slaughter of 2016. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious a continuation to, of something that already existed, right? right. But but I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the response to that because I feel like that's the first that was the first time. I mean, I'm I'm of the generation that you know I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and so I grew up you know my my big formative queer moments were were Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. were Xena, but I never saw the reaction. Like what happened in 2016 with the death of Lexa and this huge uprising. Yeah, I, I, it it really brought it back to me it, for me reading this book to organizations like the National Gay Task Force and Gay Media Task Force engaging in that activism. Um, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on kind of that. It's almost like a resurgence. I mean, yeah, fandom was there before, and certainly fandom was a huge part of Xena. And, and informed how they played with the, the lesbian undertones of that show. And there was certainly a backlash after the killing of, you know, half of the lesbian couple on Buffy. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't social media then. Yeah, That's not, the to the, not to the extent, exactly. You know, there were news groups. That's not the same, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I think, the big thing is you could, like, mobilize people really fast now. And so, yeah, you had, I mean, it goes all the way back to, to the history of cinema, right? If you look at the end of the celluloid closet, the appendix is called the necrology. Mm. And he goes through film by film, you know, the fox, you know, the tree falls on her and she almost looks relieved, right? Well, I um, mean, you know, it all goes back to the Hayes Code. So, yeah, so, but, but with social media, you can get faster reaction. And so... Hollywood has responded. It didn't take Glad lobbying them to say, well, you know, you know, this is, we've done a statistical analysis and this is the percentage of the the gay and bi women regulars who you've killed off. Mm. Um, They were already hearing from their fan base loud and clear because of Twitter. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It almost, um, it almost makes me feel like the the advent of social media and the way that people are, that fans are engaging with the shows is the modern evolution of zaps. Is, you know, you don't have you don't have to storm a TV studio full of gays and lesbians to interrupt the broadcast. They're just going to call you out on Twitter (laughs) before you can respond and be like, hey, this was fucked up. Um, 
And I think it's really interesting to see that evolution and how we've we've kind of come back to that activism, but it's right. all internet based. Which right. I, so the, I'm like, excited to to you know read a book on the on the 21st century. There are, there are scholars doing like really interesting work on fandom now and queer mm-hmm. fandoms and and women fandoms. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. And you you saw the beginnings of that with I think sort of like the infancy of that was Babylon Five. I don't know if mm-hmm. you watched that mm-hmm. in the back in the was that the 90s I think late yeah, 90s late 90s and the head writer used to go onto Usenet back when that was a thing mm. and mm-hmm. would interact with fans every day and have a dialogue about where the show was going and would basically give you plot points that they had chosen not to include or that the network wasn't comfortable with, but that, you know, that this is informing, you know, we're assuming this is true about the characters, even though we're not saying so on screen. And that's the beginning of that. But you really couldn't get like a mob response to that. You yeah, know, whereas everyone has a phone now, everyone has Twitter, so it's all it's all on the same platform. Yeah, it's not spread out from eight billion different websites that people are are frequenting. <laughs> Everybody's going to Twitter. Everybody's going to Facebook and Tumblr, and yeah. well, less, and people less are worried. so Tumblr these yeah. years. <laughs> less so Tumblr. And what happens is the PR people from from the the networks and the studios and the producers are watching that. You tweet about a show. And you know that somebody at least tangentially connected with it is seeing that, yeah. which never was the case before. Right. I know. Yeah, it's it's become so personal. I mean, you, you get to hear so many actors and actresses talking about, you know, getting the fan mail from from so many people. And I, I think it was like, was it Billy Crystal who who in the book? Oh, had, on Soap. Had yeah. talked about, yeah, the, the response to, to his character on Soap and, and hearing from, you know, 15, 16 year olds. Yeah, or more, more so. If you look at, if you look at, I know you said you have, you haven't seen uh, Visible out on television yet, but they interview Ryan Phillippe, who played a mm. gay teen on One Life to Live in the '90s, and uh, and it was a big deal that he was playing a gay teen because he was like from a went to this evangelical high school in Delaware. He, you know, was from this very conservative background, and he said, you know, what what finally made him really comfortable with the part was the fan mail he was getting, mm. and all these people who you know felt that. Who, who said, I've never come out to anybody and maybe I'll never come out to anybody, but I, I just want to thank you for, you know, putting us on screen in this very caring way. You know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, and again, it's the era when there were no images out there, really. We, you would grow up and I, 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 know, I started giving lectures uh, about queer images on television in 1990 or thereabouts. And I noticed there's a shift partway through the period when I was giving the lectures. I would say to people, um, usually I was talking to college students, undergrads. I would Mm -hmm. say, you know, where did you first hear that queer people existed? How did you first know that there were other people like you? And up until almost the year 2000, the response was always, you know, oh, I saw someone on a talk show or I saw this movie or my preacher was preaching hellfire and brimstone or something like that. And then right really around, <laughs> no, and then, well, and people weren't really out, right? Mm-hmm. And then starting around 1998 or so, when I would ask that question, I would get answers like, well, you know, my, my uncle would bring his boyfriend to family gatherings. Mm-hmm. My parents were friendly with the lesbian couple up the street. And so, so they knew real life. There was less riding on the media images. And then starting also around let's see, the World Wide Web goes online in 94 and people start to really have internet connections at home around 96 into 97, right? Mm -hmm. So suddenly less is riding on television, right? Because you could be 
you know, uh, uh, a 15 year old lesbian in a rural part of the Bible Belt and go online and chat with other gay teens. Mm-hmm. Whereas that had never been possible. Well, early 90s, yeah, people with, you know, modems who would dial into BBS systems. You know? <laughs> right. But yeah, yeah, that that connection is yeah. so important, being able to actually reach out to queer community as opposed to, ah, yes, this one lesbian on TV that I saw one time, this is the only person I've ever seen who I can resonate with, and I can't actually talk with them about my experiences. And she killed a bunch of old ladies. She killed a bunch <laughs> of old ladies, and then she got hit by a truck, or whatever, yeah. Ugh, gay or evil. Or dead, or, uh, gay or evil. That sounds like a fun game. Gay or evil. Um, yeah, evil or dead, if you're gay. Uh, so we're, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time here, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, like, if you could see any queer historical figure's life story kind of adapted for TV, Ooh, is there somebody that you would, like, absolutely wanna, wanna see happen? I mean, we're getting a lot more of those. Just in the last couple of years, we've had, you know, from, from TV and cinema, like, Wild Nights with Emily, you get, you know, right. some, some de-straighting of Emily Dickinson. We have Gentleman Jack now with Ann Lister, which, oh, which is, is cool. like my favorite thing ever. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a Twitter feed that is nothing but screenshots from that show. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I'm going to have to check that out. Um, I, I don't know, because like you have, it has to be somebody whose life, I mean, well, I suppose... A, a non-exploitative biography film of Christine Jorgensen could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Or Renee Richards, if you're yeah. looking for trans. I mean, there was there was one with, with there was the TV movie with uh, Vanessa Redgrave. But I'm right. sort of not counting that. that you know. um, I, I think Frank Kameny, and if you look early gay activists, Frank Kameny could make a really interesting film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so many people don't know about the homophile movement in itself, so. And he was like... He was, there were certain, those like really early people like Dorleg, Frank Kameny, uh, Del Martin, Phyllis Lyon, Barbara and Kay, you know, they were, they just knew they were right and they weren't going to hear otherwise. And, and that, how do you, how do you live in a world that, that reflects nothing positive about the type of person you are and see that, you know? So I admire them greatly. And there is, I mean, there is the documentary, uh, The Lavender Menace which mm-hmm. is ostensibly about, you know, the, the, the queer baiting during the Red Scare, but a, a lot of it winds up being about Frank Kameny anyway, because uh, he was just about the only activist pushing back, in, you know, in the 50s uh, in the Washington area. But yeah, I think he, his life could make an interesting film. I, a lot of these activists, though, had just sort of like, you know, normal, quiet home lives. You know, it's not like, it's not like Barbara and Kay were out solving crimes on the side or something. Right. So I, don't, I don't know what you would film exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I tend to, I tend to think more on, I tend to think more about like folks from history that we, you know, kind of mm-hmm. uncover their queerness or that just didn't get a lot of attention. Like I, ever since learning about like Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, uh, who I don't, I don't know, know if you know about them. Oh no. my God. See, these, these are like, this is why I'm like, there needs to be a movie. They were too, there's, you know, scholarship about whether or not they were lesbians, but there's a lot of, if you look at, at a lot of what Claude Cahoon was saying, they resonate very much with like a non-binary identity, but they were, um, two people in France during World War II who were, uh, surrealist photo artists and, then engaged in a like a counter-information campaign against the Nazis and started oh, wow. putting like anti-fascist 
poetry in the pockets of of SS officers and and would do radio broadcasts and all of this amazing stuff like just and gender breaking mm-hmm. things and they ended up getting put in a in a Nazi camp and got out and it was and I'm just sitting here like why That's is a there, movie right Why there. is there not a movie about these two? Yeah. <laughs> or like a good a good film about, you know, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. Mm, yes. You know, I, 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 I saw, I, there was a PBS documentary about them in the 70s, and I, I finally got to see it. And I think I mentioned it in the book, and you're watching it, and Alice is only ever referred to as her secretary. secretary. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just excited by like, so, many, so many stories that haven't been told, and I'm sitting here like, okay, who can I give money to, mm-hmm. to do this? Uh, what do you want readers of alternate channels to kind of take away with them from, from reading the book? My view on that has changed. So for the first edition, I was sort of writing an activist manual because like, you know, there had been good I- images and then they had just like become hellish. And I was like, how did, how did we fix this the first time and how can we do that again, right? Mm. So that was the, the, when I was writing in the 90s, that's where I was coming from. But I think it's just to have a historical perspective. I see a lot of people going off on things that because they don't understand where they came from. Mm. And I think you can't really understand where you are unless you understand what went before it, right? And and some of it is like this very anti-activist sentiment I see, you know, I'm like, everything that you have was gotten for you by activism. So you don't get to poo-poo activism, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. No one just handed us our rights. That's not how it happened. I love that. I'm interested to hear what projects you're you're working on now. I know that your your day job, you're a translator, but uh, mm-hmm. are you are you working on any other books uh, to kind of go along with with the way that your lectures have evolved? I, I'm thinking of it. It's a very hard thing to structure, right? Because because there are so many platforms now, and so many sources, and we're seeing foreign shows with like really cool queer content, right? So I don't know how to structure it. There's like no linear narrative there. So I might do it as an encyclopedia. Uh, I don't know, you know, like, you know, those old uh, directories of primetime television, but Mm -hmm. it would just be like, you know, shows with queer regulars. And uh, that's one way of doing it. I don't know. What a problem to have, right? Just like, oh, there's too much much now. (laughs) As opposed to digging through the archives. I can't even record. I mean, people I, People tell me, oh, have you seen season five of such and such show? I was like, I've never even heard of that show. How is it in season five? <laughs> you know, you know I, I just discovered the British series Grantchester, which I had never watched before. I've never even heard of that one. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's uh, yet an, the British love their shows about crime busting clergy. So it's another Anglican <laughs> priest who solves murders. And I, you, you just, I wouldn't want to live in this town because like you're likely to be killed. Right. But <laughs> It's like but Sunnydale. It's like Sunnydale. Yes, it's like Sunnydale. Uh, am I the only one who, whenever Kellyanne Conway is on TV, thinks she looks like a Buffy villain? Oh, I, I, no, absolutely. <laughs> she 1000% looks like... Like, why has like, no like, one like, sent like her a two, back like a two, through the hell mouth? Yes. <laughs> she reminds... It, it's She's like a less charismatic The Master. <laughs> yes, yes. She just, she just looks mean and you know a little decrepit and i'm not talking about her physical appearance i'm talking no, about like, her just... facial expression and just like the way she's she just, just exudes. the vibe she exudes buffy villain yeah you know? yeah <laughs> um, well and, you know and then you sit here like long enough and you're like ah i have lived long enough to watch joss whedon become his own buffy villain 
Oh, really? I haven't ways. been following. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff that has come out about that guy. Oh. 1990s feminism versus 2020 <laughs> intersectionality. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, the last kind of thing I wanted to chat about um, before we say goodbye for today, because as much as I would love to talk with you all day, I'm sure that you have yes. lots of things to get done. Um, so, so folks who pick up this book, just so you know, so this is this is a, a new addition to the book that came out in 2000, and you wrote in the intro that you decided to preserve the original language of the book yes. rather than updating the terms that may seem now outdated. Uh, can yes. you talk a little bit about your decision to do this and treating the book sure. kind of as a, a time yeah. capsule of queer studies? Lit some of this is some of this is coming from the fact that I work as a translator. I work with language all the time, and I think a lot about language. And I, I thought about this, and I thought, you know, when people look at clips of old shows, uh, like talk shows, and they mm -hmm. say, "Oh, how horrible!" You know, she used the phrase, "Oh, he used to be a woman," or "She used to be a man." If you don't know that that's how trans people were talking about themselves at the time, mm -hmm. you don't have the context to understand what's going on there. Right? right, or to know, you know, how gay people were talking about themselves, how bi people were talking about themselves. I think you need that context. Otherwise, it's the equivalent of like republishing, you know, uh, a, a James Baldwin essay book and crossing out the word Negro everywhere and putting a little carrot and writing African American. Mm -hmm. No, the, the the language is part of the history. Exactly. Uh, when you see that language, it puts you in the era and in the mindset. And I think that's very important. Yeah, I thought I thought that was I really wanted to bring that up because that's something that we on on this show have really talked a lot about is preserving language and acknowledging that that's not what we use right now. But you can't dehistoricize language. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, f our our very first teaser episode specifically spends ten minutes talking about the language that we we mm -hmm. plan to use in this in this podcast. So I thank you for going into that and for putting that disclaimer on the book because I think it is really important to kind of see what we're looking at at the time period that we're examining, which is really neat. Uh, and you you mentioned really briefly Visible out on television. I just wanted to let everybody who's listening know that uh, Stephen was the lead historian on that docu series, and it's on Apple. It's on Apple TV, right? Apple TV Plus. It's a five part miniseries uh, documentary series about uh, the history of LGBTQ representation on American television. They got fantastic people. I mean, my part was like very behind the scenes, very you know, pointing them toward clips and doing research. Uh, the producers took all that material and just made this emotional roller coaster of a documentary. Uh, I love the degree to which they center, you know, voices of people of color and trans voices and women's voices. It's not, you know, yet another documentary about a bunch of white gay men talking about everyone else. It's it's really very inclusive. It's well researched, well edited. Yeah, so I'm very proud to have worked on that. Yeah, I'm excited to check it out. It's it's been on my list. I have we we talked a little bit at the beginning of this before we started recording about disclosure and we're talking about Disclosure is amazing on on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to watch Visible. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about or mention that we haven't already discussed, Stephen? Well, I guess I should mention the title of the book again, yes. uh, which is <laughs> it's uh, the the new edition is called Alternate Channels: Queer Images on Twentieth Century TV. Um, it's available on almost all ebook platforms. You can order the paperback just about anywhere. I get a little more money if you order from Amazon, although I understand if you don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's beautiful. I really love the new cover, and I I've really enjoyed. It's a, it's a deep dive, folks. Like there are so many things that I have learned from reading this book. Um, so I suggest you go out and you get it. Support queer authors. Support queer history. And oh. uh. Yes. I know what I didn't mention is uh, my Twitter feed because I actually post video clips from shows sometimes. I, so we're we're right on the same on the on the same <laughs> wavelength because I was just about to ask where can people find yes. you and more of your work uh, on the internet on the interwebs as they used to say. Uh, yes. So yeah, my Twitter my Twitter ID is at Stephen Capsudo Stephen with a V. C-A-P-S-U-T-O, at Stephen Capsudo. Uh, and when I'm not overly busy with my day job, I post a feature that's called Today in Queer TV History, and it often includes video clips from shows. And I post some of that also on Facebook. On Facebook, if you search for alternate channels, uh, but tw the Twitter feed is better. All right. Yeah, and also uh, you you give lectures yes. uh, all over. So if you are a person who uh, wants to, uh, I mean, virtually, considering we're all right stuck now. in our homes, uh, but if you're somebody who wants to virtually bring Stephen to your organization or your school or anything, you also have a, a website that people can go to. Alternatechannels.net. And yeah, the my usual, the, the full lecture, which I used to do in person, of course, uh, is like an uh, almost two hour extravaganza going from the 50s all the way up to the present with video clips and we talk through, we basically use the video clips as a window into the changing status of queer lives in America. Neat. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm well, thank excited. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot from talking to you and from reading the book. Um, just my own, you know, uh, for my own edification and, and getting to getting to go back further than I really even have gone into in terms of images. Uh, so this was exciting for me. I hope that you have a, a wonderful rest of your day. And thank you for, for hanging out and chatting with me. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of History is Gay. I know that up at the top I called it a mini episode and I always shoot myself in the foot with that because all of our mini episodes end up being 45 minutes to an hour. But you know me by now. I'm very verbose. I hope that you enjoyed this fun interview and we'll be back next month with a regular episode with a wonderful, cool new guest. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Bye.